from the Heritage Foundation. I'm Michelle Cordero, and this is Heritage Explains. Gun ownership surveys have found that about one in three Americans own firearms. Surveys also indicate that 60% of these gun owners have them primarily to protect themselves and others from crime. And it works. Almost every major study on this has concluded that Americans use firearms in lawful defense of themselves and others between 500,000 and 3 million times every year. Yet these are not the stories that make their way to the national cable channels. They're small, local stories and rarely leave print. How about this story in Alabama? Thanks for joining us this evening. I'm Dan Schaefer. Also new at 6 tonight, the private security officer called a hero by Huntsville police shared her story with Way 31 after she stopped a man from entering a Huntsville nightclub with an AK-47. As he tried to go towards the door where you can see the black chair is right now, that's where I had to go ahead and put him down. That security officer is talking about the man on your screen, Samuel Williams. She shot at him twice, hitting him in the leg. He's now facing multiple charges, including possession of a firearm by a felon. Or this small business owner. Mike McCall told me he was shaking and scared for his life when two men with guns hiding their faces, except for their eyes, with hooded sweatshirts, tried to rob him. But Mike, who is 80 years old, didn't back down. I shot one shot. I don't know even I shot, I just shot, I, then uh, he got down and ran and the other one went to the end of the store and asked me not to shoot him. And this homeowner who shot and killed a man who broke into his house in the middle of the night. Police released the 911 recording in which he whispers information to the dispatcher while the intruder can be heard smashing items in the background. The call's over 12 minutes long, so we edited some of the most important parts. 911, what are you reporting? Yeah, my house is getting robbed right now. What address are you at? 13th Avenue Southwest. Do you see someone inside? Yeah, he's, he's inside right now. Okay, where are you? In my bedroom. Are you armed? Yeah, I have a gun. Can you still hear them? Okay, is your door locked? You can hear me. I need you to talk to me. I need you to know what's going on. Hello? Hey, what's going on? Where are you? Okay, we, we've got officers coming. What's going on? What happened? I lost the phone. Hold on. Okay, Hello? I heard shots. What happened? 
I I had to shoot him. He came after me. I'm hiding in my closet by bedroom. Okay, where are you right now? Please hurry. I don't know. No, I'll, no, I'm you're in okay. My bedroom upstairs. Okay, so if I'm coming up the stairs, there's, where there's is it? There's more people. There's still more people. Okay. These are the stories that we must draw attention to. In a time when lawmakers and activists around the country are moving to impose restrictions on the ability of law-abiding Americans to keep and bear arms. Today, on Heritage Explains, we talk with Amy Swearer, a senior legal policy analyst in Heritage's Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, who has been highlighting some of the many defensive gun uses that occur every month to help spread the good message that the story of the good guy with a gun is not a myth. It was her research that inspired today's episode. Amy, you've been writing a series of articles, one every month, in which you've highlighted reported cases of defensive gun use that rarely ever make local, much less national headlines. We just highlighted a handful of these in our introduction where do you find these cases and this information? So I, I wish I had some sort of you know, top secret, super awesome answer. But the reality is uh, these are just Google searches that between myself and, and interns, uh, we just run every month. And we, we kind of keep this almost like internal updated database where, where we go through them. So it's it's not uh, anything that can't be found by by anybody listening. Um, and in fact, I'd, I'd encourage people, especially if you're sort of skeptical of you know why why do people need guns? How often does this happen? Or even if you just want to give sort of a, a bigger context to this discussion, to just go and, and Google defensive gun uses, you know, homeowners defending themselves. And I think you'd be shocked even in your own communities just how commonplace. This really is. These aren't uncommon occurrences, um, even in relatively safe neighborhoods. These are things, again, I, I think it kind of goes over a lot of people's heads, uh, you know, it sort of stays out of their purview because, as you said, you know, these don't make national news a lot of times. If anything, you know, you, you see them maybe in your local paper, some some media coverage um, in your local news for, you know, two minutes and then you never hear about it again. Um, but these are very, very searchable things, things that are easily found by anybody. So you've been doing this for about six or seven months now, I think. Yeah, we, we started uh, January 2019. Bigger picture, what has the data shown you looking at these collectively? So I write a lot on Second Amendment policy. Uh, and one of the factors that always comes up in those discussions is the number of defensive gun uses in the United States. Uh, in almost every major study uh, that has looked at this, so we're talking um, almost two dozen different studies, uh, it, they've almost always concluded that Americans use firearms for defensive either themselves um, or for those around them uh, somewhere between 500,000 and 2.5 million times wow. every year. Um, so there are two outlier studies um, that have concluded it's about 100,000 times a year, You know, only 100,000 times a Still year. Still a lot. Um, but the, the CDC's own data sets, um, when they've collected this data and people have gone through it, uh, shows it's probably about a million times a year. And I think that that's about roughly the average of all of these studies um, that, that most of them find within that range is, is about a million times a year. So what do you want to tell us after doing this research? What's important that, that we should know from each one of these instances? I think the biggest thing and the thing that has struck me the most is just how normal these individuals are. These are normal, 
everyday average Americans. Uh, you know, it's a fun statistic to, to throw around to say, oh, you know, a million defensive gun uses a year. Um, but what we really wanted to do with these articles uh, was to give a, a face and a context to that statistic to say, you know, this is what defensive gun use looks like. These are the the, the types of, of people who are using it. I think a lot of times, especially individuals who don't own firearms, sort of have this conception of you know, anybody who thinks they might have to use a gun defensively or who has used a gun defensively as, as sort of this, you know, hero wannabe, this this vigilante Rambo who who wants to you know, go out and find danger around every corner and track down criminals and, some you know, obsessed gun collector. Right. You know, there's sort of like gun nut who's like, I'm going to find me some criminals. Um, but but the reality is these are just everyday normal Americans. These are your friends, your neighbors, um, you know, your, your parents, your siblings, um, just people who were doing ordinary things in ordinary places when extraordinary moments happened to them. And they were able to defend themselves and others um, without going out of their way to to find crime. You know, it, they they were just living their lives, and in a fraction of a second, you know, here they are confronted with a violent reality, um, and they just happen to be prepared for that opportunity to do something about it. So, what's your response to? And whenever I have a debate with someone who's really anti-gun, they might say to me, you know, well, you don't need a gun; just call the police. What's your response to that? Well, I'd say, first of all, certainly, if you have the opportunity to call the police, call the police. You know, and anytime you're you're facing a violent situation, yeah, absolutely. I have a deep respect for law enforcement. Um, you know, yet let law enforcement do their jobs if they can. The problem is it takes law enforcement time to arrive. Uh, you know, it, cops are not our personal bodyguards. They're not right there with me when things are happening. Uh, and so what we find is that uh, most often individuals who are using their guns defensively did so because they were their first and sometimes their only meaningful line of protection in that moment. Um, so when you look at studies on sort of the, the response time it takes from law enforcement, even in emergency situations like your active shooter scenarios, um, you know, something where someone's screaming bloody murder on a 911 call, we're still talking an average of about six to eight minutes. It's a long um, time. It, it's it's a lot of time, especially considering, um, you know, so so if I'm carrying and I have to draw my firearm in, in self-defense, that's, that's about three to four seconds, you know, maybe 20 seconds if I'm in my home and it's, you know, my gun's in another room. Um, but th- those minutes matter. Um, you know, a lot of times that can be the literal difference between life and, and death. Um, so it's it's not a matter of, oh, well, you know, forget about law enforcement. We don't need them. Certainly that, that's not the case. It's just they're not there all the time. Um, and, and there are a lot of stories that we've gone through that I think really highlight this reality that, you know, the, those seconds, those minutes matter. For example, one of the ones that really sticks out in my mind was from uh, May, is a story from May um, in, in uh, Hudson, Florida, where you had a, a mother of three who calls 911 three different times um, because someone is, is middle of the night trying to break into her home. She ends up holding uh, this individual at gunpoint for 26 minutes before wow. law enforcement arrives. Yeah, I have the goosebumps. As, as a mom, thinking of myself home alone, holding... <laughs> An intruder, which is a scary scenario to begin with, but then to have to sit there and hold them at gunpoint for 26 minutes. It, I'm sure it felt like a lifetime. Yeah. I, I mean, and the incredible thing is that the first armed 
support that this mother gets is not from law enforcement. It's actually from a neighbor. Um, so she she texts a neighbor and a, and a neighbor comes over uh, with with his firearm and it's like, all right, I'm going to I'm going to help you hold this guy, you know, and, and sort of give you some some backup here until till law enforcement can arrive. But this was like sort of this recurring theme that we saw. We had a, another one um, from April in, in South Carolina where you had an individual in, in I think, Hampton, South Carolina, um, who lived less than a block away from his local police station. So you'd be thinking, you're pretty safe, right? You're a block away from, you know, where where all the cops are sitting around waiting to come respond to me. Unfortunately, he was in a situation where two men broke into his home again in, in the middle of the night. And he had to, to use his gun to, to, I think he shoots and takes the life of one individual and uh, the other one was, was wounded and eventually captured by police. But we're talking again, just seconds that, that he didn't have to, to call and to wait even a block away. And another one, I, I think from April, again, I think you played this actually in, in your introduction, this this 911 call of a, a guy in Washington where police ended up releasing this 911 recording where, you know, he's hiding in his closet because he hears someone crash in in the middle of the night. Um, he's waiting for minutes, you know, on the, 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 the phone with the 911 dispatcher waiting for police. And I, I think it ultimately only takes about nine minutes for law enforcement to arrive. Um, but in the interim, I mean, you you hear him waiting in this closet and ultimately, you know, the guy breaks in, tries to get into the closet and, uh, you know, the, the homeowner has to shoot him in self-defense. Um, and and you, you hear him for the remainder, like five minutes waiting for cops where it's like, you know, they're, they're trying to get there. You know, this isn't a, an issue of law enforcement not doing its job. It's just the reality of, of their minutes away when when seconds are the things that matter. It's just it's a, it's a harrowing 911 call to listen to. Really quickly, I just wanted to shift gears and give a shout out to a brand new podcast series that Heritage has just kicked off. We're talking about the supposed myth of the good guy with a gun today. Well, we're addressing more myths in this series. It's called Millennial Myths. And what makes this one so cool is that it's hosted and edited by our amazing interns who are part of Heritage's Young Leadership Program. Thank you, Justin and Samantha, our interns this semester. The podcast is called Millennial Myths. Like I said, you can find it anywhere you get podcasts. It's out right now. There are man-on-the-street interviews with millennials. It will definitely raise your blood pressure, but it's good stuff. Okay, now back to my conversation with Amy. So I've seen you write before that firearms are the ultimate equalizer. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is... Firearms give individuals who would otherwise be, you know, outgunned, outnumbered, out, outpowered, um, who are at a disadvantage to criminals, it, it puts them at least on equal footing um, with with people who are are trying to infringe on their inalienable rights. You know, whether it's life, liberty, property, um, it, it gives people who are otherwise disadvantaged the means to defend themselves. Um, and where we often see this come out um, are, are these stories where we're limiting the ability of that law-abiding citizen in that moment um, to, to fight back, whether by by limiting the type of firearms they can have or by you know limiting their access to firearms, um, that that could have been the, the difference right there. Because in that moment, that that firearm, that ability to fight back, was the only thing that that equalized them against the, the criminals they were facing. Um, and I say this knowing that advocates of really strict gun control generally come from a good place. Um, you know, like like all of us, they want to make sure that that would be criminals don't have access to firearms. Um, you know, they they want safer communities. These are things that we all want. The problem is that a lot of times the regulations that they would impose would have 
made it a lot harder for the law-abiding citizens in these instances to actually defend themselves because criminals don't play by our rules. You know, they, they don't fight fair. And in so many of these stories, if we had tied one hand behind the back of the law-abiding citizen, it, they probably would have lost that fight. Um, and I think the, some of the ones that, that really stand out here, and again, there, there were a lot, um, but some of those that, that are, I think really will stick with me for a long time um, from, from May in Tallahassee, Florida, you know, you ask yourself, why, why does someone need more than 10 rounds in their firearm? Well, the, the reality is sometimes you're outnumbered. Um, you know, again, criminals don't fight fair. So you had this homeowner who found himself uh, facing four armed assailants, four armed individuals who uh, broke into his home and, and were rummaging through his stuff. And so he takes out his rifle, presumably, you know, a super scary AR-15 semi-automatic firearm. Um, and he was forced to fire in, in a gunfight we're talking somewhere between 25 to 30 rounds just defending himself against four individuals. Um, or if you had limited you know, his, his ability to, to use a specific number of, of ammunition, you know, he, he's all of a sudden now outnumbered and outgunned, and he doesn't have that ability to, to fight back in an unfair fight. Um, so ultimately, in that case, um, he does scare off all four of them and they're all found by law enforcement. But, you know, when you start crazy, it is, you know, and and it it reminds me back to your first point that these are normal individuals. You know, you start talking about people needing more than 10 rounds. And I think that, you know, people's gut reaction is that this must be some person who has an, you know, um, an unsavory lifestyle. You know, up to no good anyway to get yourself in a situation. What are you doing that you, you know, invited foreign guys in your home? But but it's it's really just, you know, and again, these are are rare in the sense of like, you know, it's not like every day in every neighborhood this is happening. But when it does happen, it is absolutely the difference between life and death. We saw this again. um, I think one of the other ones that that sticks out is in June. Um, We wrote about another instance in Florida where you had a a man who was uh, he had just this long history of just felonies and and carjackings. I think he was suspected of multiple carjackings at the moment uh, that this happened. Um, but so he tries to break into this guy's store, um, and the business manager, the, the owner of the store, happened to be armed and and is you know, as this guy's breaking in and, and starts confronting him, um, he uses his lawfully possessed firearm to, to defend himself against this guy who's breaking into his store. And what it shows us here is that, you know, criminals, again, they, they don't really care about our laws. This is a guy who's prohibited by state and federal law from possessing firearms. And they still found, you know, firearms on him when he goes to break into to this this business. You know, so so clearly our attempts to 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 make it harder for everyone to, to keep and bear arms didn't stop this criminal from still saying, well, I don't really care about you trying to disarm me. Um, right. You know, they, they still manage to find those firearms. But if you keep imposing regulations and, and things, just say, for example, on this business owner to the point where, you know, he says, e- either I can't get this, it's it's too expensive, you know, there's too many barriers, or I just don't want to go, you know, it's, I, I don't want to go through the hassle. the hassle of it. You know, that turns out very differently because now you have, instead of, you know, an armed business owner, you have someone who, who can't fight back. Um and, and I think uh, so we also have another one. I'm actually really excited about this this next month's uh, article that that we're going to come out with because um, we have some really good examples in there. But the one that sticks out in my mind is is this instance in uh, San Diego from just uh, like a week or two ago. 
I think July 16th, where uh, an individual breaks in, uh, middle of the day, breaks into this guy's home and starts stabbing him. Well, so the, the homeowner didn't have time to, to get his firearm, but his 20-year-old uh, son, who's in the house, uh, is able to, within seconds, you know, take his, his dad's firearm and, and is ultimately able to, to fight off and, and kill this, this oh guy who's gosh. stabbing his dad to death. And just this week, I, I think, San Diego, uh, the city council passed uh, an ordinance that would uh, essentially have prohibited the son from, from accessing this firearm because it, it says you know, either the firearm has to be on you or it has to be essentially disabled or in a safe somewhere and, and inaccessible. Um, but what that would have done is keep that 20-year-old son in that moment from easily accessing that firearm. Yeah, like you said, seconds. Right. Matter. You know, and, and again, when we're talking about, you know, someone who's, can you imagine, you know, being, being yeah. a son and walking in and someone is stabbing your father? No. You know, those seconds, again, are the difference between life and death. And, and imposing those sorts of barriers can have real um, and, and sometimes fatal consequences. And, and it's things like that that we really need to think about when we start digging into the actual stories and, and context of when people are using firearms in self-defense. Yeah. Amy, I, I can't, I wanted to have you on and talk about this because I think that the work you're doing here is so important as a mom, you know, my husband and I, it was, it was like a couple years ago, but thankfully it was just a neighbor who had had too much to drink, but thought our home was his home. And I certainly haven't been, it wasn't as severe as a situation as some of the ones you just described, but to have someone trying to break down the door of your home mm-hmm. and, you know, the time that it took us to to get our phone out, to call 911, to wait, the you know, the the 15 to 20 minutes that it took for the police to get there felt like a lifetime. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. And so I can only, you know, I got goosebumps several times with these stories because I can't, knowing how terrifying that was, these situations are incredible and we don't ever hear about them. So thank you so much for the work that you do doing this. And thanks for joining us today to talk about it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this episode of Heritage Explains. I'll put all of Amy's research in our show notes. If you like this podcast, rate us, review us, share us, email us at managingeditor at heritage.org. We love hearing from you. P.S. Excuse my voice this week. I'm recovering from bronchitis. We'll see you next week with another explainer. Heritage Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher, with editing by Thalia Rampersad.